All right. And to be fair, Sean, I do ask you sometimes last minute to do things. I have to ask a lot of people last minute to do things because sometimes schedules get messed up, but that's okay. We're here this morning. Glad to be here with you all again. And we are done this Sunday studying Nicodemus. And as I say we're done, I don't think we're done in the sense that Nicodemus is now out of our lives, but I hope, like I've said every week, that we've seen ourselves in the life of Nicodemus, that we've seen ourselves on the journey that Nicodemus went through. Just to recap, two weeks ago we talked about the initial meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus. This idea of dissonance took over the life of Nicodemus, where the lack of harmony forced him to go and speak to Jesus at night. And then we we took a few steps forward to talk about the discord that Nicodemus had to go through, that verbal disagreement among his peers that drove him closer and closer to Jesus. And now we finally park the car here this Sunday morning with Nicodemus, the disciple. And I hope, again, like I said, you see yourself on this journey. You see yourself as a disciple. You see yourself actively discipling other people. And that this journey is important, and it's a journey that we're all on. But like we've studied every single week, this, or these past two weeks, we've kind of defined what we're talking about, okay? So the question is, what is a disciple? This is the dictionary definition. A follower or a student of a teacher, leader, or philosopher. And we use this word a lot in church. We use this word to talk about ourselves, to talk about the apostles, to talk about guys like Nicodemus. The word disciple is used pretty much all the time in the New Testament to talk about anybody following Jesus, right? And we ourselves use this word a lot. In our you know, conversations in class, we call ourselves disciples of Jesus, and rightfully so, because this definition, you know, we are this. We are students. We are followers of Jesus, okay? And that's a really, really special distinction, but in the context of, uh, of Nicodemus, in the context of Jesus, we need to see Nicodemus as a great disciple long before he ever meets Jesus, okay? In order to be a Pharisee, you have to be a disciple, okay? One cannot be without the other. Pharisees are inherently good disciples. If we're looking at this definition here, okay, this is our working definition, Pharisees are good students, Really good students. Actually, they're renowned to this day for being purveyors and, and keepers of oral tradition. It's really hard for me to communicate you know, directions to somebody, let alone oral tradition, oral you know, laws passed down by generation to generation. But the Pharisees were actually really good at this. They had to train and they had to study and they had to learn these deep, intimate knowledge that they had to learn from their teachers that they were going to pass on to their students. Pharisees were inherently good disciples, great learners. But the question I have this morning, and this might be a semantics thing, and if it is, just bear with me, okay? But is there a difference between being a follower of Jesus? There it is. Is there a difference between being a follower of Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus? We just learned what the Definition of disciple is a teacher, excuse me, a student or a follower of a teacher, you know, so on, so on, so on. Is there a difference between being a follower of Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus? To me, there's a slight, a slight distinction. And for today, we're going to see, 
Oops, sorry. <laughs> We're going to see this a little bit different. When I think of the word follower, I'm, ta- I'm talking about it literally, okay? Somebody who passively follows something, right? We all do this on social media, right? If you're on social media, we follow somebody on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. What does that mean? I can get on Facebook, I can get on Instagram, and I can scroll and I can see, oh, Michelle Devine posted another picture of a, of a child, Right or uh, or this this football player talked about you know the great game they had. I'm following them in a very literal sense. I'm seeing what's going on in their life. Okay, we we talk about it in social media. We talk about it in sports too. I follow two very terrible teams. Okay, I don't know why I put myself through this type of misery. I follow the Magic and the Jaguars, and it's like, dude, there's other teams. Um, but I am a follower of those teams, right? I don't play for the Magic. I don't play for the Jaguars. I have, no, I have no influence on what happens to the team. I am simply a follower of those teams. Yes, they're very important to me, but they're not what I live and die by. For this morning, I want to separate that idea of being a follower, a very passive, non-committal, in a way, non-committal follower in comparison to a disciple. And for this morning, I want to see a disciple as a dedicated follower who follows with a purpose. Okay? A dedicated follower who follows with a purpose. A perfect example actually comes up in John. If you're with me here in John chapter 6, it's up on the screen. If you want to follow in your paper, it's John 6, verses 66 through 69. This is a perfect example of the distinction I'm talking about this morning. From this time, many of his disciples turned back. Actually, pause for a second. In this context, Jesus had just turned to, he he had a large following going on right now. And Jesus turns around to him and says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part of me. That's a little dicey to say as a a teacher, right? You have this large following of people. Why are you going to say something crazy like that, Jesus? And they actually asked Jesus that same question. What you say is a hard teaching, okay? This is the response. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter, who answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. To me, there's a distinction there between a follower, someone who is physically following behind Jesus along the way as he teaches, right? And then once things get difficult, those same followers do the exact same thing but in the opposite direction, right? They walk away from Jesus when things get difficult. But when Jesus asks him, are you going to leave me too? A disciple responds this way, Lord, to whom shall we go? Do I have any choice? I am a disciple. You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. To me, this is what true discipleship looks like. That even when things get difficult, even when hard teachings, they might be difficult to receive, in response to those hard teachings, you still turn to Jesus and say, We have come to believe and know you are the Holy One of God. And even though this is hard right now, I know you are who you say you are. That is a disciple. And another perfect example of a disciple, I believe, is Nicodemus. He embodies this 
to his own disadvantage, right? We talked about all the things he had to lose as a Pharisee. We talked last week about even verbally disagreeing. He didn't even disagree, right? All he said was, does our law condemn a man before he's actually heard out? And then just that little disagreement, the Pharisees turned to Nicodemus and said, are you from Galilee too? You must be because you're disagreeing with us and aligning with him. See, Nicodemus had a lot at stake, and that's why he becomes the perfect disciple in my mind. Not like, a, not like a distinction. I'm not making like he's the perfect disciple, but he's a perfect image of a disciple. And this Pharisee, he came to a similar conclusion that Peter says right here. Okay, he, he can no longer walk through his life and turn away from Jesus. But as a disciple, Nicodemus embodies this. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. He is a disciple. And because of this conclusion, Nicodemus no longer had a choice. He had to change the trajectory his life was going towards in that very moment. He had to change. Because of dissonance, because of that lack of harmony, he had to go to Jesus at night. Because of the discord he had in and among his group, he had to make a change. But the question I keep coming back to Nicodemus is why? Why do all this? Why risk everything? Can't you just be a private disciple of Jesus? No. We've talked about that too. But the question still rings, you know, true to us. Can't we just be private disciples of Jesus? Why do we have to risk everything? Why do we have to look different from the people around us? Why do we have to do so much to pursue Jesus? I have two examples here. You might not be familiar with this guy. I was not familiar with him until this week. His name's Chuck Feeney. He was, um, he was born into a family, kind of lower middle class. He worked for everything that he got in his life. It seemed that way. You could probably do your own research and tell me I'm wrong. That's okay. For today's story, he worked his way up, okay? Uh, um, he, he went to, uh, he was in the military for four years, and through the military, he was able to, to get the GI Bill and go to school, and this guy is the reason why you guys go to airports and buy duty-free things in the airport. He's the guy who kind of invented that. And guess what? That landed him. A whole lot of money. He was worth $8 billion, with a B. But Chuck Feeney... Like I said, he didn't grow up wanting to be wealthy, and once he accrued all this wealth, he really hated the fact that he had all this wealth. And I know a lot of us today are thinking, like, you're crazy, man. Like, I need to pay for, you know, my car insurance. But he looked around, and he said, you know what? I don't like being wealthy. I'm actually going to give away everything I have. And his goal, from, I think about, about 15 years ago, was to die broke. And now we say die broke. He did leave he and his wife $2 million to live off of. But in the grand scheme of things, guys, that's 97.5% of his entire, you know, estate. He just gave away. His whole purpose was, I see problems around me today, and I want to see what this money can do to fix those problems. I want to give it all away. And because of his generosity, many other billionaires are saying, hey, I want to give while I live too. I want to see what's happening with my money, to see the lives that I'm changing, and I want to do it now instead of when I'm dead. He wanted to see the work that was taking place because he looked around and saw there's a lot of disadvantage happening. I want to do something to make a difference. Now, we can't necessarily relate to Chuck Feeney. Most of us can't. I cannot. 
If I gave away 97.5 of my estate, I couldn't go to McDonald's, okay? Um, <laughs> but this guy I think we can all relate to. Terry Dietz. I am behind on the Survivor, uh, you know, the show Survivor. I'm only in season 32, but Terry Dietz, uh, the, the older man on your left, he was a, a contestant on Survivor twice. One of my favorites. He was also in the military, actually. That was not, that's a coincidence. Um, he was a pilot for the U.S. Navy. He, became, he was a commander uh, while he was um, in active duty, and then he eventually started to, to be a pilot for American Airlines. But he's an adventure guy. He said, you know what, I'm going to do Survivor. And in his first time on Survivor, he got really far. He was awesome. He was a challenge master. But then the, the, the season 31, they brought him back for a second chance. And he was doing really well, just like he did the first time. And he's winning challenges. He's making you know, alliances. Um, but then Jeff Probst, the, the, um, the host of the show, comes to him at night. And he wakes him up. And he says, Terry you got to leave the game. Your son is in the hospital. And you can just see the life drain out of his face. And what we come to find out later is that his son actually needed a heart transplant while he's out in the middle of the jungle playing in a game. And they interviewed him after, and he said there was not a doubt in his mind that he was going to leave that game. And, you know, the, the, the survivor fan of me is like, well, how bad is it? You know, could, could, could he have made it? Could Terry have gone all the way? But then I put myself in Terry's shoes. There's no question that I would have done the same thing, right? That's something we can relate to a little bit more. That feeling of someone I love is in dire need and I'm far away, but I need to go now. He left a place of, you know, he could have won a million dollars. He could have gone far. He could have done things he never expected he could have done. But the moment he realized that his son was in need, he dropped everything, got on that plane and went home. And he said, there's no regrets in his mind that he did the right thing. And we could all agree with that. We can all feel that. I feel that right now. And I want you to hold on to that feeling because I know for a fact there is something or someone that you are willing to drop everything and go and help and do. We talked about Chuck Feeney. He saw a need and said, there is something I need to do now that I cannot get around. I need to give of my estate, my wealth, and do something about it. Terry, very much, very much more you know, tangible thing for us. My son is in need. I need to go do something now. I have to do this. That's the same energy that I think we need to bring to discipleship. Whatever feeling you're feeling now for whatever thing or person, what if we brought that same energy to the way that we disciple other people? It's no longer something that somebody else can do. It's no longer something that the minister can do or the elders can do or whoever can do is now my responsibility because I have to go do it because that is what I have to do. How does that change your mindset? Does it change your mindset? We all have that thing. What if we did this towards discipleship? Because that's what Nicodemus did. Nicodemus, he had this, this thought. That he said, you know what? I'm a, I'm a 
I'm a Pharisee. I have this great standing. I'm part of the Jewish ruling council. I have all these things. But the fact that Jesus is here, this is troubling for me because it seems like the guy that I've been waiting for, this Messiah I've been waiting for for my entire life, that my father, his father, his father, his father has been waiting for their entire lives and never got to see, he's here now and I got to do something about it. That's what Nicodemus did. He saw something that had to be done and he went towards Jesus. And that is what we are called to do. Go towards Jesus. And I've held out long enough. I think we need to get to our text today. We're almost done, I promise. But I wanted to bring bring us here to kind of land the plane. This is what discipleship looks like. This is the trajectory of of Nicodemus' life. And this is the trajectory of our life as well. Let's read in John 19 and following. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Remember that. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking the body, excuse me, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in that garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is discipleship. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. The dissonance, the discord, the disciple, he's here. And like I said, Nicodemus has been a disciple his own life. He's been learning and trying to find different, different ways to communicate. And he, found, he finally finds that Jesus comes in the flesh and he's actually alive to, to, to be there and to witness this. And he has to do something about it. And it leads him to this place. And so I've said that we're supposed to see ourselves in the life of Nicodemus. And so the question is, what does this mean for us as we try to be disciples of Christ or for Christ? Because no, we're not going to be able to go to the cross and take the physical body of Jesus down and prepare his his body for burial. We're not going to be able to do that. But what does it mean for us? The first thing is that Disciples go. Okay? Disciples go. This is the repetitive theme for Nicodemus, okay? That he is constantly going towards something. He is constantly journeying closer to Christ. Eventually to the very fact that he's holding the physical body of Jesus as he, for the final time, separates himself from who he was and to who Christ has called him to be. Disciples must go. That same feeling that I told you guys to hold on to about that thing or that person that you got to go and do something about, that's the same energy we got to bring to discipleship, but it's not as scary as it seems. Okay, when we talk about the Great Commission where it says, go and make disciples of the nation, the better way to translate that is to say, as you go. Because sometimes, yes, we are called to go. Like, you know, David is here. David is called to go to Honduras, and he is doing something physically going and doing. And that's awesome. But a lot of us, 
we don't recognize that we can do the exact same thing as we go. Make disciples. Be a disciple. What does that look like? It's, that, it's just about having the mindset of saying, I'm no longer just going to work to earn a paycheck. I'm going to, to work to earn a paycheck. But as I go, how can I be a disciple of Christ? How can I make disciples for Christ? How can I journey closer to Christ in my every single day? Because disciples have to go. Disciples can't be passive followers. Right? To call back to what we were talking about before. We can no longer see being a disciple of Christ as simply just being a passive follower because we have to go. No longer a choice. And that's, that's the thing about Nicodemus. What I've kind of pictured him to be is a very pragmatic man. Pharisees probably were, okay? Very rule-oriented. If this is true, then this is true. Very, very, very much order of operations kind of people. And to me, I can see almost the frustration that Nicodemus must have experienced. Like, everything that I've built up to this point is just shattered because Jesus is here. But there's great joy in that. But it doesn't mean that it's not frustrating. Because there's not a choice anymore. And we are in the same camp. We must go. We do not have a choice. We must go and be disciples. So the first thing is disciples go. The second thing is disciples identify with Christ. Like I said before, I told you to remember um, when we read from John chapter um, 19 just a few moments ago. Let's go back to that, actually. We've already talked about how the identity of Nicodemus has shifted throughout the book of John. But look at what it says here about Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Ding, ding, ding. Guess who he's hanging out with? Nicodemus. But he's not afraid of Nicodemus. There's no fear because he's no longer one of the Jewish leaders. He's no longer one of those Pharisees. He is first and foremost the man who had earlier visited, excuse me, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. His whole identity is different. And the same thing needs to be said about us. As we are disciples, our identity must be different. No longer am I just Jimmy the whatever. I am a minister, so it's kind of hard to separate. But Sean is no longer just the drummer, right? He can't be. He has to be Sean, the disciple of Christ, who also drums. Right? You see what I'm saying? We are not supposed to throw away the gifts that God has given us to do, but we are supposed to take on the identity of Christ and as we go make disciples in whatever way that we can make disciples. That's where we end today. Nicodemus transforms completely in John. Yes, he's always a disciple, but when he recognizes that Jesus is who he says he was, he changes, and we should too. Do people know you're a disciple by how you love other people? Do people know you're a disciple by how you carry yourself at work? Do people know you're, you're a disciple by fill in the blank however you want to? Make yourself uncomfortable this morning. Make yourself as uncomfortable as humanly possible and ask yourself that hard question. Do people know I'm a disciple when I blank? Because as disciples, people need to know. And that doesn't mean that we're supposed to be out here shouting on the corner, you know, Bible bashing people over the head. That's not what I'm saying. 
but it's supposed to be about your lifestyle and how you just are, showing the joy of Christ in everything that you do, that people will know that you are one of his disciples by how you love other people. And that is where we end up. Disciples go. Disciples identify with Christ. I I hope that this series has challenged you to see the challenges that you have in life and to not be afraid of them, but to recognize it's part of the journey. Let's journey together, and let's continue to make disciples together as well. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time, and I thank you for the study of Nicodemus to see how we can be better disciples, how we can disciple others. God, help us to go when we don't want to, and help us to identify with you when it's hard. First and foremost, help us to just emulate Christ the best way we can at this very moment. Some days will be better than others, but God, we recognize you are with us as we go along in our journey. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. If you have any needs, we want to invite you. If you want to be baptized, we invite you. If you have a prayer request, we invite you to come forward, but not just to come forward for the sake of coming forward, but to approach Christ and say, I need you at this moment. Please help me to see you better. If you don't want to come forward, get with someone that you're comfortable with. Talk to an elder. Talk to a friend. Do what you need to do to pursue Christ this morning as we stand and we sing.